Vietnam rally. Everyone has ordinary everyday problems to cope with, but when these problems are coupled with a drinking problem, life in all its social aspects takes on a desperation of despair. All emotions run rampant. We who present this rally to you today have found a semblance of order for ourselves out of all of this chaos. We have risen above the hopelessness of alcohol. It is through the Al-Anon Fellowship of understanding that order and reason and constructive thinking has given us a new way of life through service. It is a joy to have Annie bless our rally with prayer. Let us pray. How great thou art, eternal God, our Father. We thank thee this evening for the many blessings that thou hast bestowed upon us. We thank thee, Father, for these that have met today and another Al-Anon rally. We pray that thou would bless AAs and Al-Anons all over the land and country. Because, Father in heaven, if it had not have been for AAs, we would not have had Al-Anons today. So we thank thee for it today. We thank thee, Master, for this speaker that's going to speak to us this afternoon. Oh, God, we pray that you would give us an understanding heart. Help us to realize, my Master, that you are God, and besides you there are none other. Bless these workers as they work untirely to carry this message, the new way of life. We thank you, O oh God, for these blessings and all others in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. is performed by Al-Anons when we express the higher power in the way we have come to understand it. Once we rise above the alcoholic problem, many voids may be filled by innumerable expressions of 12-step work. Our first speaker has been active in the Detroit area Al-Anon Council since its inception. Past chairman and secretary and she is now serving on the council board for its second term. A group representative to the World Service Conference, and she was sent as a delegate by the council to the International AA Convention in Long Beach, California. Recently, she has made an appearance on the Connie Page TV Channel 2 program on alcoholism. I present to you now Muriel B. Thank you, Elaine. Hi, everyone. It really does my heart good to have so many of our wonderful friends with us again today at this, our fourth annual rally. When my husband came to Alcoholics Anonymous, there wasn't any Al-Anon in this area. That was almost nine years ago. At that time, I didn't know how badly I, too, needed help from those 
who had lived through similar experiences. So for the first 18 months of John's sobriety, it was mighty rough for both of us. I went to a lot of open AA meetings with him, but they didn't help me very much. That was because I had a chip on my shoulder and a closed mind. To be sure, everyone was very nice. It wasn't their fault I felt the way I did. It was my own thinking, thinking. It took Al-Anon to set me straight on a lot of things, but even that took time. I was very stubborn. I still am. I have a hard time practicing these principles in all my affairs. It was John's suggestion that got me into Al-Anon when the wives of a few of the older members mentioned having heard about this organization, John told them that he was sure I would be interested. And so they asked me to join them in getting a group started. That was almost eight years ago, and we've been going strong ever since. Today, there are around 40 Al-Anon groups in the Detroit area, a little over 100 in the state of Michigan, and 2,000 Al-Anon groups throughout the world. For those of you who don't know the first thing about Al-Anon, it is a fellowship of the wives, husbands, relatives, and friends of members of Alcoholics Anonymous and of problem drinkers generally. Members of Al-Anon are banded together to solve their common problems of fear, insecurity, lack of understanding of the alcoholic, and of the warped family relationships associated with alcoholism. Our message is a story of hope. We follow the 12 steps of AA, applying them to ourselves. We also have our 12 traditions and our aims and purposes. Like AA, most of our meetings are the closed discussion type. Occasionally, we have speakers or panels and so forth. For the past seven years, we have had our Detroit area Al-Anon Council, which meets the third Saturday of every month. Our office in the Park Avenue building has been operating for a little over two years. Our New York headquarters has been doing wonderful things for about 14 years. And our World Service Conference will meet for the third time in New York in April of this year. As Elaine told you, Connie Page, who has a daily TV show at 10 a.m. on WJBK Channel 2, devoted part of her program each day during the week of January 14th to alcoholism. 
A member of Alcoholics Anonymous appeared on a Tuesday, and on Wednesday, an Al-Anon member appeared. We are very grateful to Connie for the time, so we could bring our message of hope to the families and friends of the alcoholics. We were able to explain how the disease of alcoholism affects the entire family. Many calls were received as a result of these interviews. Yes, alcoholism is a family disease, and it often takes the families much longer to get over the effects of alcoholism than it does the alcoholic. In the February issue of the AA Grapevine, there is an article entitled The Al-Anon Story. And I would like to quote one paragraph from that story. AA as a whole has welcomed its offspring, if not always with a wild exuberance at least with a warm tolerance. What is probably a consensus was well stated by AA's official publication, Grapevine, in an article by an initially suspicious member. This reporter had heard about these goings-on, the piece says, and like many a smug AA, assumed they were mere knitting circles. I was lured into one of their meetings recently. If I came to sneer, I remained to pray. This was no sewing bee, but a spiritual force at work. I guess I was expecting to hear long complaints about how they'd been put upon by our boozing. There was none of that. They were examining not us, but themselves. End of quote. Al-Anon and Alateen can reach the families and help them long before the problem drinker is anywhere near ready for AA. Fifty percent and maybe more of our membership is made up of those who are still living with the active problem. Some have been coming to Al-Anon for years. Some of the mates have come to AA. Maybe some never will. But these women and children have learned how to accept the problem, live with it, and have even found a measure of happiness for themselves. These, my friends, are wonders to behold. Yes, I have been very active in Al-Anon, but so have a lot of other people. We have been called upon to talk at meetings outside of Al-Anon and AA, meetings such as church groups, uh, the Board of Alcoholism, and so forth. None of us want any thanks or recognition for these things. We only want to carry the message. Our rewards come from being able to help just a little and in seeing people change 
and grow in this wonderful way of life. I always thought it was the mates who took such a beating, but now I believe it is the children. Because when one parent is trying to drink himself to death, and the other is so emotionally upset and frustrated, the brunt of the whole thing falls on the children, and it has been known to have very bad effects. The Alateen groups have been doing a wonderful job. I have heard some of these young people talk, and it is truly wonderful what the group therapy can do. Being interested in other people and trying to help them is a new experience for me. Before Al-Anon, I was so self-centered, I didn't give a hoot about anyone else. After all, nobody had troubles as bad as mine. So I am most grateful for this wonderful organization and grateful that I have been able to do the things I have done. It has given me an opportunity to meet so many truly wonderful people. I guess I am fortunate that I married an alcoholic. Today we have a lot of excellent literature. Just to mention a couple, our council puts out a monthly publication called Council Law. New York headquarters publishes a monthly publication known as the Al-Anon Family Group Forum. From the February forum, I noted 52 new Al-Anon groups last month, and I was impressed with such places as Saskatchewan, England, Germany, Bombay, India, Rome, Italy, Rotterdam, and the Netherlands. The wonder of Al-Anon is that it keeps giving comfort, restoring confidence, and shedding light in dark places. I am sure that I will need Al-Anon for the rest of my life, and so I hope and pray that it will go on and on and on. Thank you. It always saddens our heart to speak of mishaps that come to our friends in Al-Anon. And it is with a saddened heart that I make this announcement to you today. Georgette Kay was to be with us but she met with an automobile accident and now has her neck in a traction. We certainly hope and desire a very speedy recovery for her. As a result of much planning and prayer, we Al-Anons are anxious to present our guest speaker, whose footsteps have crossed many miles to be here today. And I'm very grateful to present to you in place of Georgette Kay, our new friend, Julia O, who is going to speak to us today. Good afternoon, and I am Georgia. 
and a member of the Melrose Eleanor family group. When I left home last Thursday, I took a side trip on the way. I was feeling so at odds. How would I meet a group of strangers? What would we say to each other? I knew people in Eleanor and Massachusetts. I had always been among friends. And what could we say to each other before we got to the meeting? And until this moment, I have not been at a loss for conversation. But at the present time, I know a mental vacuum. I'm very grateful to be able to be a part of your rally. And I'm very sorry Georgette had an accident. And I will pray very hard that God will let me have the proper kind of sympathy. But her misfortune has been my good luck. And it's been a real pleasure to be among you. And it's just like being at home. Because I have found this as far as I have traveled. When I stepped off that plane and Jesse and Jane met me, we started talking as though we had been friends for years and years. I know I came here to bring a message of what Eleanor brought my family. What we as a family have learned from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous about a program of recovery. Your theme is faith, and I can only tell you a story that happened to me. And I can only tell you that through this story I have known many types of faith. The faith born of desperation, the faith born of despair, and the faith that has been given to me through the miracles I have seen through the working of the Al-Anon Family Group Program. My story with alcoholism starts 14 years ago. I probably should say it started 19 years ago when Joe and I got married. But you see, 19 years ago, I had no comprehension of what alcoholism was. Alcohol and, his, and the things that went with it meant pleasure, fun, and people. And I loved every minute of it. I knew Joe drank heavily. I knew he drank a little differently than the rest of us. But then we were all entitled to sow our wild oats, and so I gave him a chance to sow his. Joe and I were married during this war, and we were separated for two years. During that time, I had our first child. Now, I settled down. But when Joe came home, he hadn't. And I presumed that when he came home and found a wife and a family and a baby daughter who had been waiting and praying for him, that life would be so full that we'd have nothing but hope and ambition for a wonderful future and we would work so well together. And I must also bring out the fact that I had the type of a husband who wrote every day and the first year he was away he sent flowers every Wednesday that was the day we were married and the second year he was away he sent a bouquet the 23rd of every month and all of these are accompanied by a wonderful message of love. And so Joe came home. I think I was in a state of trauma 
from that day on. Because this man who spoke of love and devotion, who couldn't wait to get home to us, was drunk the day he arrived. This we discounted to just pure joy. But he just didn't get sober. There was never a point in that first year he was home that I can say Joe was sober enough that I could say I ever knew. I, I would look at him and wonder. If, in fact, I asked him who wrote the letters and who sent the flowers. Because certainly the things that were going on in my home weren't the things that he wrote for. And alcohol was something that I never feared. In fact, in these letters back and forth, we joked constantly about the home we would buy and build, and Joe was a great picklet drinker, and we would have hot and cold water and running picklet. Now, this was a big joke in those letters, but the day came when the picklet ale became something out of, well, Carrie Nation would have had nothing on me if I ever got an action. And alcohol became a very nasty word. I can't say that in that first year I could believe it was that drinking was Joe's problem. I didn't want to, because a man who drank without control was a person who was weak well, lacking in the things that were necessary to make him the kind of a husband I wanted. I had no comprehension of alcoholism. I just know you either drank too much and if you knew you drank too much, you should stop. It was as simple as that. After this year went on, and we had a son, and we also began to, as when Joe came home, there wasn't a problem of money. I had been in business for myself. We had known an inheritance, and the government, the state of Massachusetts gave them the 920 Club. So that loafing came easily to Joe that first year, and we all put that under the heading of difficult rehabilitation for the homecoming soldier. But the rehabilitation was getting longer, and the stress was getting greater, and I began to analyze the why, and I decided, well, it was time. Perhaps he just hadn't home to take his place at the head of the family. I was still working and had a very responsible position that made very good money. And he was going out to look for work and he had not the experience, he did work, the jobs open, and he could not make the salary that I did, so therefore he didn't take the job. So I decided I should come home and become his wife and a mother. And I decided, too, that perhaps Joe had insisted that we keep the money in my name. This I never understood, but I was willing, after all, it was in my name. <laughs> I should give it up. So I, I decided that what he needed was the responsibility of handling these things. This is what rehabilitation meant, accepting responsibility. So I turned the checkbook over in the savings account, and it wasn't long after that when I got a telephone call from the bank. 
And this man uh, was president of the bank. He should know me as a friend in my town. And he asked me to come in and see him. And he suggested that we have a little talk that he didn't think I was aware of all that was going on. He asked me if I had been to the safe deposit vault recently. No, I hadn't. But I did, and I was shocked. Had I seen the savings account? Well, I hadn't, and that shocked me some more. Then he showed me these checks that uh, had my signature, which weren't my signature. And uh, I didn't know whether to pretend I knew it, because I hated to feel that this man was seeing a picture of Joe that I didn't want anyone to know. Or should I honestly, I didn't, I was both mad, disappointed, I was shocked, I didn't know what to do. Of course, when I went home, all hell broke loose. And uh, things started off, we now no longer regarded it as a problem of rehabilitation. It was, let's get going, Buster. And off we went to the races. And Joe began to control his drinking. And from this point on, he became... More or less, he started to become a bender drinker. There would be, he would uh, go on a bender, and then he would not be drinking at all for a period of weeks, and then it would be just a few beers. Well, as far as I knew, what was just a few beers. And then it would be a few bottles, and then it would be a bender. And this went on for another year. And when Joe was out of the service two years, he went on a bender that lasted eight days, away from home. And I was expecting our third child at this time. When I went to that hospital, I had no idea whether Joe was dead or alive. I don't know whether I prayed he was dead or alive either. I only know that I had never known a, a point of desolation and desperation in my life. And I think here I knew another kind of faith. I knew of myself I could never cope with this. I knew that the child at home, we had a little boy whom we knew was not going to live, that his time in this world was limited. They had told us his lifespan would be three. He was then... Uh, almost two. I knew that I could not just give up and die. He knew what would, would take care of him, and yet I wanted to so desperately. So I knew how to pray during this period that God would clear my mind and make it a vacuum. He did. It's true. In that period of time, I prayed, and I thought of nothing else. Before, when the doctor was aware of the problem, the vacuum was partly responsible, uh, partly caused by the sedation that the doctor made up his mind that he'd knock me out until we located Joe and this would be it. When Joe came home this time, my sister, who is a nurse, was at home. And I was, this too was the grace of God because my family would have had no patience but she had a great deal of understanding. And she realized Joe was sick, and she called the doctor first, and she called him, and she asked him why he didn't see the person in AA who worked with him. 
Jindal had spoke of many times in the last year, in a, uh, but always with ridicule. And uh, he used to really, uh, it would be, I couldn't describe how he ridiculed him, but I know he never believed he stayed sober. He used to think he was a rather dull person whom he'd never say anything about the low to. But Joe called this man this day, and the man came down to see him, and that was our first introduction to AA. And I say our first introduction because that man accompanied Joe to the hospital. He didn't come to the room, but he escorted him up and escorted him back. And uh, when I was released from the hospital, I'll never forget, as long as I live, the day I first read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. It had all the answers to all the problems in my life. That was all of us to it. We had it made. And I know that Joe and I read that book together, and I'm glad, too, because we shared an experience that we'll never share again. Because this marriage and these people were desperate for hope. And that marriage was a bankrupt affair. And Al-Anon, our AA, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the explanation of the alcoholic as a sick person, and the description of alcoholism as a threefold disease, physical, mental, and spiritual, these are things that gave me something to work with. They gave me hope that Joe and I could work this problem out. And after I got well enough, I went to my first AA meeting. And I remember I heard the serenity prayer. And there I had everything I wanted. I can remember that serenity prayer and how well I didn't use it. <laughs> I very if I had a problem to face and I didn't uh, feel that I could face it, I said the serenity prayer, and I used it as a means of escaping many responsibilities. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Well, I couldn't do anything, so we accepted. I never went on to ask for the courage, and I always felt I had the wisdom. And I might, I'd like to bring out here that during the time I went with Joe, just uh, before he went in the service, uh, I was staying at his home that weekend, and his aunt had sent him the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, this was the first edition of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Joe was going through the drawer, packing things, and he said to me, what was this my aunt sent to me? And he handed me the book, and I came to it. And I said, Joe, did you ever see such a bunch of trash in all your life? Deep into the wastebasket. The same book I call trash became the very hope for existence some five years later. And so Joe went to AA, and he stayed sober nine months. This, too, was the grace of God. During that nine-month period, this little boy died. And we had the strength and the comfort and the courage that comes from AA people. When you're in trouble, they're with you. There was never a moment that we didn't feel their presence, that we didn't know their encouragement. And through that nine months, I learned what it was to live with Joe Soda. 
I saw the things that Indra, that I knew I had married him for. And also, at a very early part of our marriage, we knew what we were fighting. Not each other, but a disease called alcoholism. And we knew there was an answer. At the end of this nine-month period, Joe did drink again. Now, they, if he just didn't abruptly drink, he began to get away from meeting. We were at that time 27 years old. And I wanted Joe sober, and I wanted him in AA. But I wondered what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Where did I fit in? Where would we, what would we do for friends? I was very fortunate in this nine-month period. There was no Al-Anon around 14 years ago. But my husband joined an all-men's group. And once a week, the wives met in Dark Cellar. And these women were a good deal older than I was because the average age of the member of AA at that time was about 15 years older than my husband. And these women had lived 20 and 30 years with an active alcoholic, and I had lived too. They told me then that my knife needn't speak like theirs. Then in AA, they had a way of life, and I could make this my way of life, that I could take the serenity prayer, and it would guide me through many trying situations. They taught me through their experience that I needn't lose love nor respect, nor need I ever take away from Joe the dignity that belonged to him as one of God's creatures. As long as I remembered that he was a sick alcoholic who suffered from the illness of alcoholism. This makes a tremendous difference in the bitterness and the hurt and the anxiety that one faces future problems. I know the lessons they taught me took me through the next six and a half year period of Joe's drinking. Now this wasn't six and a half years of drunkenness. We probably had far more, in fact, I know, we had far more sobriety than we did drinking. But during this period, our problems and Joe's problems, I began to see were different. Uh, we were never again alone, or I was never again alone. I always knew there was another avenue of help. At this particular point, and through, since that period, there's been a great deal of education on alcoholism. I could read a great deal of information. There were many avenues of health open. The alcoholic clinic opened in our state. Through AA, there were psychiatrists recommended. There was family counseling recommended. And if there was an avenue of hope, believe me, we traveled every one of them. And each of these brought in turn a kind of faith. The day that Joe first went to a doctor who prescribed antibiotics. Well, 
I knew if he did nothing for Joe, he did a lot for me because he gave me those pills. And I gave him that pill every morning. And I thought, never again will he fool me. When he drinks, I'll know it. For this, I'd have that period of, is he or isn't he? Should I accuse him or shouldn't I? And if I did accuse him, he'd say, oh, that's what you're suspecting us of. And then when he did drink, he'd say, well, you thought I was drinking, so I might just as well anyway. And I was always tormented with that, uh, did he drink before I accused him or after I accused him? <laughs> and to this day, Joe will never, uh, whether he doesn't know, or prefers to leave me in doubt, he would never, I would not ask him after he got off the bend, did you, did you really take a drink before I accused you? He'd never answer me. And he always used to let me have my own little torment. He had his some people in mind. But this antidote, for a while, gave me uh, a sense of security. And I liked it very much. The only thing was, it was just a temporary affair. Joe learned how to put the pill on the side of his cheek, drink his coffee, take the pill out when I wasn't looking, and he started drinking again. And I finalized today, I realized, yes, Joe did stop drinking but he didn't do any of the things that AA recommends in changing the personality and making the many changes that are so necessary to maintain sobriety. And so from the psychiatrist, we hit a psychologist. Now this psychologist believes that alcoholism was a symptom of Joe's illness. But I kind of sensed that he was trying to blame me so he didn't get a word of truth out of me anyway, and he didn't get a word of truth out of Joe, so he was no help whatsoever. And I can't say the man didn't try desperately, but I, I knew too much about alcoholism, and Joe knew too much about alcoholism, and he was a dud. And from there, we went to the alcoholic clinic. Oh, no, previous to this, we sought counseling, and this was through chain of consciousness. Now, we got a good understanding of marriage here, and this was wonderful. The only problem, uh, both of us gained a great deal. First of all, it laid the groundwork for a very good marriage because it instilled into it a great deal of the basis of respect for marriage and its principles and purposes that we had, were beginning to lose sight of while we fought this problem of alcoholism. And these people helped our marriage, but they did nothing for Joe's problem of alcoholism. And much as they did help us, I knew that when they were having these question and answer periods, Ari and Joe and I were always silent because our problems were different than theirs. There was no mutual ground in which we met. And then we went to the alcoholic clinic. Now that psychiatrist was another person who was a milestone in Joe's sobriety. There's been much said against psychiatry, but we were very fortunate. And I've known many others that have been very fortunate. These people are deeply interested in the problems of the alcoholic and his family. 
I won't say they're always right, but they're motivated by only the greatest love and compassion. For that I'm grateful, and I'll cooperate to the utmost with anyone who's interested in me and my problems. Today I will, anyway. And this man uh, was assigned to the clinic to a specific uh, psychiatrist. And Joe did drink while he went with to him, so therefore I felt another failure. By now I knew that Joe's problem was unique. He was different from any other alcoholic. AA didn't work, psychiatry didn't work, medicine didn't work. And I think he was convinced of this too. This particular psychiatrist brought Joe back to AA again by telling him that he had never been to an AA meeting. And Joe, of course, in his talk, had told him much of what he had heard and learned of himself in AA. And so the psychiatrist, oh, oh, he was in his enthusiasm to talk about, oh, help all these other alcoholics got out of AA. He volunteered to take the psychiatrist to an AA meeting. And when we when Joe got there, the psychiatrist knew every other person in the place. <laughs> but he accomplished his purpose. He brought Joe back to AA. But this particular psychiatrist gave to me the first comprehension of alcoholism as an illness other than the physical aspect. Now, I had sat for many, many years at AA meetings. And I would listen to a man who got sober and a man whom I thought made this program and I was sitting beside a man who was not making it. And I would look at him and I'd say, he's more stupid than Joe. He hasn't got any of the qualities of If he can make it, why can't Joe? I would go out of that place so angry, and so resentful, if I could have kicked Joe in the shins a hundred times on the way home, I would have. Instead of listening to what they were telling me, I wanted to know what they did he wasn't doing. And only Joe could know that. It was also during this period I read the AA book. My husband will tell you I could quote it backwards and forwards. He heard it breakfast, dinner, and supper. And I, there, I looked at everything except the two chapters that were written for me, to the wives and to the family afterwards. And if I read them, I only read them with one purpose. What did she do that I'm not doing? And that it's incomprehensible that I could have read so much and gained so little. But by now... If Joe's drinking was an obsession, my desire for his sobriety was an even greater obsession. Ellen spoke that she had never known how to work the people. I used to say, I feel for you, but I just don't reach. My problems are bigger than anybody. And I felt this way. Now, I feel sorry for you. Oh, you've got trouble. But mine are different. And so... It's then until I came to Al-Anon, I had no idea what AA was talking about. I had no idea that they meant for me to pick up the pieces of this philosophy 
and make it my philosophy. This was for Joe. And yet I would say the words, oh, this is a wonderful way of life for everyone, even if they never knew the problem of alcoholism. And here I was married to an alcoholic, listening to the speakers, and I was incapable of ever putting into practice one thing that I heard. Joe did come back to AA his last time was seven years ago. In fact, he just celebrated when last Wednesday night, his seventh anniversary. And Ellen mentioned the period of 18 months. I can honestly say that 18-month period was the worst period of our marriage. Joe had brought many, many things that were good into that home in that 18 months of sobriety. I could not determine what was wrong, but there was constant turmoil and confusion. I don't think God himself could become the kind of man that the wife of the alcoholic pictures the sober alcoholic would become, because she lives with dreams, and the worse it gets, the better he's going to be when he's sober. And you remove yourself from reality. You say one thing, but you, you have many mental reservations. And I know I pictured Joe a shining knight on a white charger, and all our life would be blissful from the day of sobriety. Well, Joe falls a battle of alcoholism. He desperately knew that this was his last chance. He fought a desire for a drink. And I don't know what I fought, but I fought the whole world at that time. Joe would be going out to meeting, and I wanted him to go, but I'd set that iron board up every night he went out to a meeting. And I hated to iron. But I went and I'd say, oh, go along, dear. I'll iron while you're going. And I'd leave him with that sense of, Guilt, even. Well, gosh, I ought to do something for her. And then you'd say, would you like to do something for a weekend? I, th- I suppose you'd rather have to go to a meeting. Oh, no, no, dear, if you'd have to go to the movies, we'll go to the movies. Well, we'd go to the movies, and I'd know he'd rather be at a meeting, and he'd think he was doing it to please me, and I'd resent the fact that he was doing it to please me. He finally, he used to say to me, is there something I can say? Is there something I can do? Could I write it out for you? And I'd look at him and say, So you shared your misery with me. Why can't you share a little bit of what you've got inside you? And he knew what I meant, but he had no way of giving me what came from serenity and peace of mind and a philosophy and a way of life that was becoming his and not mine. Joe and I, during that six-and-a-half-year period of his drinking, had become, well, we had togetherness like it's described in the uh, Lady Home Journal. When Joe wasn't drinking, we were together, together we played Scrabble, we played Gin Rummy, we listened to the radio, the TV. Where he went, I went, and where we went, the children went. And we had, I think he, oftentimes he'd go on a bender, it was a relief for both of us. This is true. And when Joe got sober, now, I didn't want to lose the bond we had. 
But I didn't want, I knew that also we needed something besides this little world that was all in our own little house. I had made many determined efforts to go to a women's club, become active in PTA, but I had many children. I have eight. The oldest is 18 and the youngest is two. And I had a busy life at home and I was limited in what I could do outside the home. And my interest wasn't with it, because when I was away from that house, I had to worry. Was Joe going to drink because I wasn't home? Yet I would be the first in line to tell you that I was not the reason Joe drank. He was, drank, he was an alcoholic. And that only he could solve his problem. Yet I could not leave that house for fear he would drink when I was gone. And I would know a sense of guilt and a sense of remorse. And I had all the facts that I quoted and none of the feelings within me that gave me the peace of mind that went with it. And so after Joe had come back to AA 18 months this last time, we had read of Alanon in the grapevine. And every time I read it, I'd say, Jesus is a swell idea, I must look into it. And he'd say, you sure must. <laughs> and finally, there was an article in the grapevine, and Joe happened to mention it to some older member of AA who had just spoken before an open meeting of Al-Anon in Lynn and told him where there was a meeting, and boy, he arranged for me to go very quickly. And he was sure I would be interested. I needed it. I needed something, and he was sure of that. So that I did go, and uh, I did like what I heard, and within a few weeks, we started a group in Malvo. And my life began then, and it's true. I began then to enjoy girl sobriety. Now, Al-Anon has provided me with friends, with people who understood my problems. Many, many alcoholics have been my friends for the years that Joe drank. And in particular, I owe a great deal to a woman alcoholic whose husband is also in AA and who also has a large family because she kept in close contact with me all the years goes in and out of AA. And I know they were my friends, but I know too. Their golden circle ends right here. They're inside and I'm outside. Their transmission line is between each other, and ours is between one family and the other. There are many times I will never see eye to eye with the person, the alcoholic, because my concern is with the family and how they will best serve their well-being. Their problem is the alcoholic and how best they can help him reach sobriety. We many times will argue when a man will say, she should never make excuses for him. Let him lose his job. And I can't agree. That job's her bread and butter, the food for her children, the rent for her home. And when she loses that, she's got a lot at stake. So I can't blame her for hanging on so she finally comes to, till he loses the job for himself. I've learned in Elon that the alcoholic must take the consequences of his own actions. 
but I have also learned that the family must have no self-preservation. We must work hand in hand to bring, to bring this message of hope to the alcoholic. But we primarily must keep our sanity and our emotional sobriety while we do. Now, at many points, we will disagree. Perhaps it sounds like it is a crutch to the alcoholic. But it is that family security. It is that family emotional stability at this particular stage of their growth at this particular stage of their knowledge of the problem of alcoholism. And so though it might be wrong at, at a future date, for them at this time it is the right thing to do. And so we argue pro and con. Even in Alamon we argue this one. She should, she shouldn't. But as long as we are motivated by love, and faith in a higher power if we ask God to guide our actions, to guide our tongue, we can't be far off. And here in the Elnon family discussion, I learned how to take a look at what the problem of alcoholism has wrought in effect upon me. And in the first step, I took a look at the problem and I realized we had, I had a job to do. My life had become unmanageable. Up to this point, Joe's life had become unmanageable. Our life together had become unmanageable. But here for the first time with sobriety in the home, I could admit my life was still unmanageable. And I learned there was only one life I could change and that was my own. I could, by my example, be a great deal of help to both Joe and my children, but I could change only me. And in the second step we say that a power greater than ourselves will restore us to sanity. Now, I thought that was a very dangerous word to use around me because I thought I was talking insane. I preferred to believe I was emotionally upset. In an Eleanor discussion, when people are discussing the things they did while they lived with an active alcoholic, it kind of loosens the tongue and opens the mind, and we begin to take a look back. And there were many things that I did, of which I will never be proud, and I realize today but for the grace of God could have been terrible tragedy. At one point, I gave Joe a dose of 15 Nimbusol. Now, I didn't do this to try to kill him or hurt him. All I wanted was a 10-minute piece of mind. He was, yes, 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 upstairs, downstairs. Uh, if he would only have sat still. So, I remember I had these pills. My sister had given them to me as a sedative. I was afraid to take them, so I gave them to him. I gave him sandwiches, and I opened the capsules, and I emptied them in the sandwich. 
I served in the drink, and I opened the capsules, and I threw them in the drink. And it was a... I was shocked when I found I had the last pill one. I realized today that Joe never got the full content of the 15 capsules, because you know a man, when he's coming off a bender, he's up, he's down, he's in, he's out, and he's got a drink, he put it down, he's got a sandwich, put it down, so I don't know how much of it he actually got. But when I realized the pills were the bottle was empty, I became panic stricken. I was afraid to call the doctors to call the police, and they'd arrest me for attempted murder. And then, well, finally, I, I got too frightened for Joe, and I called the doctor. Well, the doctor came in, gave me a shot, knocked me out, and he really thought I was sicker than Joe. Today, my family was there, and they had him. They had them give him salt and water to sip, black coffee, and walk him all night for 12 hours, make sure he stayed awake. And when the alcohol wore out of his system, the sedatives took over and just slept two days. <laughs> when I came to AA, I learned some more lessons. I was the man in AA whom I became very friendly with. He was an old-timer, his name was Tim Ring, and perhaps he, he was probably, when we came around 14 years then, he had been then sober four years, so to me he was the epitome of knowledge. And he told about when he was a sergeant in the Marines, he used to give those guys when they came back in the morning with a hangover a good dose of Epicat. And that cured him. So I decided, well, if a good dose of Epicat could do that for a Marine, I'd cure Joe. <laughs> and Joe was on a bender. And I knew that Joe would drink any alcohol that came in his sight. He'd never question where he came from. And I left the house when Joe drank by this time. But I went down every morning, and I left him a half a gallon of wine. Because about, see, about the third day he was on wine, he could no longer drink alcohol, uh, drink whiskey. And I knew his pattern enough to know this, and I knew he would never question where that gallon of wine came from. He wouldn't care. He'd just drink it. But I had already opened it, and I had already filled it with four ounces or eight ounces of Epicat. I did this twice a day. And Joe drank anything that came his way, and he got very sick. And he tried to... He did get out of the house a few times, and he did notice there was a distance. Well, as the story turns out, Joe became very dehydrated, and he ended up in a hospital. And I never did admit to the doctors that I gave the effort tax. They just presumed it was the amount of alcohol he drank and, and how sick he got and, and the vomiting from the alcohol. And I know that the grace of God was with me. And as I tell you these stories today, I'm as aware as you that that was very insane. Because never would I have heard so. I only wanted to help him. And that's a pretty crazy way to help anyone. And then the third step, we turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him. And I have always prayed, I've always attended church, and I've always put my problems in God's hands, but always with directions of how it should be run. And it took me a long time to say that serenity prayer in the right manner, but now I was saying, God grant me the serenity to change the things I can't accept, and uh, the wisdom, they ask for courage, and uh, I had this all jumbled at this particular point of affairs. So that by now, I learned through Alamon 
that I needn't be afraid if I offered God my hand, he might take my whole arm. And I became willing that he take the whole arm. If it would give to me the peace of mind and serenity that I saw the other people in this program gaining. And in the fourth step, it says we take a moral inventory. To me, that's an examination of conscience. During Joe's drinking, and for uh, since we had attended that Tina conference, I'd had a little booklet, and it was called An Examination of Conscience for a Married Couple. And it was for husbands in the front and for wives in the back. And I had it worn out, flipping over. Well, I could look at the things I didn't do, but I could flip to the front and see what Joe didn't do. So, therefore, that excused me from all the things I didn't do. So, there was no guilt, no remorse, no nothing. I didn't have to do anything because he didn't do anything. And so, for the first time, I took that little book and I read only one half of it. And I began to find out that it wasn't the things I did, but the things I didn't do. These are the places I was remiss. And so, I examined my conscience. And in the fifth step, we admit to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, in Al-Anon discussions, this is a very simple thing, because we sit amongst each other, we have our transmission line, we share the same problems, we're talking the same language. And I could admit to you, as a member of Al-Anon, and in that discussion group there was nothing I wouldn't admit. I was well, my defects and all. But to come home and do something about them, now there's a different story. Also, I had to begin to admit a few of these things at home in order to do anything about them. Now, I think that it's true in the family of the alcoholic the power of communication has been badly marred. And I have found that this discussion group, particularly for Joe and me, it worked in this manner. Their closed discussion and our closed discussion is on the same night. And we'd both come back from discussioning very enthusiastic, each so anxious to tell the other about what they had heard. And of course, when I was telling the things to Joe about the stories and the things I'd learned, little by little, I was revealing to him the things I was learning about myself. And so, in turn, was he revealing to me the things that he was learning about myself, himself. And the surprising part of all this is that we knew each other. I knew Joe, and he knew me, but we didn't know ourselves. And so that little as I admitted these things were our discussion, I couldn't say to Joe, these are the things we discussed, and so we don't do anything about them when we come home. So I had to learn to admit them and begin to do something about them. And in the sixth and seventh steps, we become ready to do something about our defects of character, and in the seventh, we become willing to have God remove all the things that would keep us from this way of life. In the sixth step, I think I interpreted in this manner. In discussions, I learned to prod my conscience. The things, once I learned these things about myself, it became uncomfortable to do them and live with me. And so I had to begin to do something. And as I did something about them, 
I began to know a freedom and a sense of serenity and security that I've never known in my whole life. I was doing something about improving my way of life, becoming closer to God, becoming a human being, I guess you'd call it. And in the seventh step, when I came to that part, to me it means I loved what I found here. And if God will give me the grace to remove anything that will ever, ever keep me from reaching for all the things this program has to offer, I beg him for that grace. And in the eighth and the ninth step, we make amends wherever possible. And I remember to my dying day, the, the woman who sat there and said, and we should make amends to our husband. Oh, I was shocked. Make amends to my husband. <laughs> I, the wounded. <laughs> and it took me a long time to realize. You know, when Joe would say things to me when he was drinking, many times I would say, oh yes, this is what he really feels. This is the way he feels. These are the things he believes. And even though in later days I knew that alcohol was what he, well, alcohol pumped at the top, I don't think I forgot. Well, I don't think, let's face facts. I knew I never forgot what he said. And it left a lot of, well, deep-seated resentment. Things that were buried like an iceberg for so long I never knew what caused them. But never for one moment did I think that Joe remembered the things that I said to him. Because I thought, he knew I was angry, and he knew I was angry because he was drinking, so of course he knew I didn't mean them. And as our avenues of communication would open, and Joe would repeat to me some of the things I said to him seven years ago, ten years ago, maybe even two weeks ago. I was shocked. You know, I was shocked to find that Joe had resentment towards me when he was sober even. I knew he resented me when he drank because, but I thought that was because he knew that I was his conscience when he drank. I was the one who removed his liquor. I was all the things that took his drinking away from him. But I saw when he got sober, he saw me for wonderful wife I was. How I lived for him. All the things I did was for him. And he saw me as a human being and as his wife and, and the person he lived with all these years and knew so well. The only thing I didn't realize was Joe accepted all my defects along with all my good qualities. And he was resentful of the things I did to him, but he knew me and he loved me just in the same way I knew him and loved him. And in the same step, it says, we take a daily inventory. This is when I examine my conscience at night. And when we are wrong, promptly admit it. Well, I have a roundabout way about promptly admitting things even to this day. If I'm wrong, I bake an apple pie, I scrub your flour, I show you I was sorry. And I do all the things that would show it to you. But to actually say I'm wrong and well, this takes a great deal of courage on my part. Now, for others, this might come easy. And the first time I said I was sorry without all the rigmarole that preceded it, 
I think they almost fainted. And to this day, he would quote what happened. And I know it's made life easier because today's trouble ends today. And the hurts of today end today. The things that I've done end today. And they come, and with it comes a deep resolve to do better tomorrow. In the 11th step, we increase our conscious contact with the God of our understanding, seeking only knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry it out. You can't be around Aaron or around AA without realizing that God is a very close part of this program. And the miracles we see and the miracles that we know are to come make us deeply grateful for, the, for being a part of it. And we know, too, that we want to be closer to the God who has given so much to us and to so many families like us, the God who has allowed a program like this to come into our lives. And I used to think that we started this 11 steps after we were in a Al-Anon some five or six years I drove to it. And it took me until the last year to realize that I was starting that 11 steps the day I started to say a prayer in the morning asking God's help through this day and thanking him at night. It's a very simple step that I tried to make very difficult. And in the 12th step it says, having had a spiritual awakening, we try to carry this message to other families of alcoholics and practice these principles in all our daily affairs. That too, when it said spiritual awakening, I felt, so this applied to AA, but not to Eleanor. Because I always felt that when the alcoholic came to AA, his was a revelation of life without alcohol. And this in its was a spiritual awakening. But we who come to Alamon and we find this way of life, we come to believe that this philosophy is a philosophy for us, that God will give to us the grace we need to, to bear anything he sends our way. This too is a spiritual awakening. The day we have the grace of God to put somebody else's trouble before our trouble. This, too, is a spiritual awakening. And so I realized that there is nothing in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that doesn't apply to the wife or the family of the alcoholic. And I'm very grateful, very grateful, that I have been a member of Alamon. And I know, too, that Joe and I would never have in our marriage, in our home, the things that exist today that if God had not sent Joe the problem of alcoholism as our problem to conquer. My children are active in Alateen. And I'd like to bring this up because to Joe and to me, this was just uh, a revelation. Recently, there was an article in House of Bazaar and somebody had the audacity to criticize AA. Well, apple pie and mother's apple pie and AA has been above reproach. 
that this man called attention to the glaring faults of individuals in AA and called it the program as a whole. Now, when I read it, in fact, in my husband it was read, blood pressures went to 200. And it took us time to read it over and realize that had this been printed, well, the same things have been printed in the great time. But we are saying these things to each other. And an outsider has no right to criticize something he knows nothing about. And so my daughter came in from school that day, and she saw the magazine, and it had big letters AA, and she picked it up. And when she came downstairs about an hour and a half later, she said, Mother, could I write a letter to Mr. Kane or to the editors of Hospice? And I said, surely, but let me read it first. Which I did. And that letter was a revelation to me and to Joe and to something we'll be very grateful for. In it, she censured Mr. Kane that he lacked so much knowledge of AA. And the simple thing that she said, she said that many people have the disease of cancer and they go to a doctor and he detects it and he removes the cancer and he either prolongs their life or cures them. And to that doctor, these people are eternally grateful. They don't pray to him and make him a god and they don't live their life centered around that doctor, but they will know eternal gratitude. She said, I'll bet if you were drowning and I put out my hand, you'd take it. And you'd express your gratitude to me, wouldn't you? She said, this is what AA, Al-Anon, and Alatina. And I thank you for the opportunity of speaking to you today. Thank you. Wasn't this terrific, and aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> Julia, it's been a delightful experience to share a part of this 24-hour day receiving your wonderful message on faith. We surely thank you. We thank you, too, Muriel, and you, Annie. You've contributed so much to our day. The Council thanks all of the many other helpers, too, that made this day possible. I wonder at this time if we might have any announcements from the floor.